technology and acquisition to citizen services and mission execution. A culture shift is underway with federal government leaders increasingly seeking out solutions that disrupt the way business has traditionally been done. Here we connect with those government and industry leaders driving this change and driving the real results in support of their agency mission. This is Keeping IT Brief. I'm being joined today by Dr. Richard Stone, retired Army Major General, who served as the Deputy Surgeon General of the U.S. Army, currently a Specialist Executive at Deloitte. Thank you for joining me today, Dr. Stone. Can you elaborate on how you developed the leadership principles that guided you through the pandemic and how those principles can inform our nation during the next crisis? Um, most of the skill sets I brought were those accumulated from years of uniform service and my deployments to combat and experience in combat uh, in Afghanistan. The development of those skills really uh, encouraged innovation and creativity amongst those subordinate to me across the nation. So when you're trying to lead a healthcare system in 175 sites of critical care, as well as over uh, 1,200 additional ambulatory sites, you want people to not wait for direction from the top. You want them to get to 60% on any decision and uh, where there's a greater likelihood of their success than of their failure and, and, and go ahead and move forward. And that's what we were fortunate enough to, to do in this uh, event where we had people to move forward. Now, that also requires that you be humble enough that if you find yourself going in the wrong direction, that you actually pull back and change direction and do that very transparently. And let me give you an example of that. Early in the pandemic, when New York was overwhelmed, uh, I had three hospitals in uh, in southern uh, New York, New York City area. Um, we decided to make one of those a COVID positive hospital, one of them a COVID negative hospital. And uh, so my Manhattan hospital became COVID positive in southern Manhattan. COVID negative was the Bronx. Both very strong hospitals, tremendous critical care skills. And we communicated that to veterans and the community. Well, um, nobody told sick patients whether they had COVID or not when they were going to the hospital. They just went to the place that they were comfortable. And we very quickly realized that we had COVID positive patients out in the Bronx um, and that we were moving patients back and forth that were very ill. And we just couldn't do that. And within 24 hours, we backed away from what now seems like a silly decision and realized that we had to create COVID positive neighborhoods within facilities and COVID negative neighborhoods. Now that required a whole subset of decisions that as we isolated pieces of uh, information. I want to think about bringing three meals a day to a patient who is actually eating meals uh, and not that critically ill. Um, you, you couldn't move even people delivering the trays in and out of COVID positive neighborhoods without taking risks to the rest of the institution. And those are the breakdowns that you saw in places like nursing homes, where you saw personnel actually transferring COVID across the institution. We had huge outbreaks and deaths in some commercial nursing homes. Yeah, it was quite 
it, it was quite impactful in terms of um, how you all were able to be a leader in the space. So what tactics are used by the Veterans Health Administration to balance caring for non-beneficiaries and veterans during the pandemic-induced patient surges? So our first priority always is, and non-negotiable, is that any veteran who prevents for care, we've got to be available to either get them care or provide the care directly. And therefore, it was not possible for us to say that we're going to send our veterans into an already overwhelming uh, situation in the commercial space. And therefore, we absorbed most critical care uh, directly into uh, into the VA uh, for uh, for veterans. When we began expanding our hospital beds, and we grew um, within a few weeks by over 4,000 critical care beds, we converted our New Orleans hospital into entire critical care ICU. The whole hospital that had been rebuilt after Katrina uh, normally operates 10 to 12 ICU beds. We created over 100, uh, literally within 72 hours, when the community became overwhelmed. It was at that point that the secretary could commit up to 1,500 beds to uh, to communities around the nation. And we allowed each hospital to decide on its own how much care they could possibly take based on their staffing and how we worked. Uh, the New Orleans conversion was very interesting because it highlighted the value of the communications tools that we activated during the pandemic. Those communication tools were in what we call the Health Operations Center, which is very similar to a, a combat operations center that uh, we used where twice a day for an hour, literally, uh, we briefed what was going on around the nation and uh, any problems that occurred. The New Orleans uh, hospital said, look, we've, we've changed over to 100 uh, ICU beds. We need uh, 16 ventilators. Well, by within the next 30 minutes, the Minneapolis VA had 16 ventilators on a truck that was already moving to New Orleans and would be there next, the next day. That type of agility that did not require a bureaucratic approval was really a reflection of the agility that we demonstrated throughout this that we allowed people to make decisions and then viewed central office in Washington, D.C. as simply an enabler of that process. The IT enabling included the fact that we grew not only our telework capability, and that included clinicians, mental health care converted entirely to a telemedicine approach. And, you know, we grew by uh, 10 times the amount of telemedicine we were providing. And that's maintained today. Um, even these years later, where especially behavioral health uh, is being done uh, on a telemedicine basis with very high levels of satisfaction from veterans. My impression is, is the entirety of American medicine has moved forward in digitally enhanced uh, medicine delivery. And, and, and frankly, I think in some ways, commercial medicine has begun to catch up to the VA. Uh, but the VA, for more than a decade prior to the pandemic, had worked uh, under uh, Dr. Evans' leadership um, and a, an incredibly skilled group of individuals um, that had worked with him to deliver the technology-enabled um, medical care delivery. And this was all in an effort to improve access to health care. And, and this is the beauty of a system 
that is as integrated as the VA is and, and, and such, such a behemoth. For your listeners, um, the, the VA is the largest healthcare system in the nation with, you know, what I had described earlier, 175 hospitals and, and, uh, about 1200 additional, uh, outpatient, uh, clinics across the nation. Even at that, there are remote areas where veterans just live too far from us. Um, in, uh, especially the Western Midwest and the West, uh, where it's just really tough. There are, are huge healthcare deserts in America. And uh, all of us are following the loss of uh, small community hospitals. Uh, California just authorized the expenditure of over $150 million to try to sustain their rural hospitals, especially in the innermost parts of California. Uh, as we watch the loss of those hospitals, access to health care in many of those communities is very, very difficult. So, Dr. Stone, why do you believe ASPR should be the centerpiece of all future pandemic responses when it comes to the integration and managing of the industrial base and strategic stockpile? Yeah, that's a a complex uh, question, and let me try to approach it in the following manner. Following World War II, the United States recognized that uh, we did not have the structure present to really um, conduct a nationwide effort that was coordinated well, and we began to grow the national security structure that supports uh, the president in any threat to American security. That National Security Council has been developed and tested over threats that occur each year to uh, the United States, and you know it's grown over these 70 years to an extraordinary organization. But yet, from a public health standpoint, when something hasn't happened for 100 years, uh, like what occurred in COVID, there was no coordinating body with the strength that allowed the nation to move forward. Hence, the President of the United States had to designate the vice president to uh, put together an ad hoc council that coordinated um, and, and I laud them for that work, but the president shouldn't have to create a structure in response to that kind of event. That structure should exist. So where should it exist? You could leave it in the office of the vice president, but the office of the vice president is not really an operational uh, office uh, that is prepared to do this. And although the power of the vice presidency was seen very effectively under Vice President Pence, um, this is not the way to do business. The Assistant Secretary for Preparedness inside Health and Human Services, this is a natural place to really do the coordination and integration of complex agencies. Um, Department of Defense, the VA have huge capacity to deliver support to the American people, but, but they're not the coordinating body to be doing that kind of work. They are the delivery of operational critical care assets. And so therefore I see the aspirin. And this is one of the recommendations that I make in the book as the centerpiece of growth. Now, under the Biden administration, there's been significant progress towards moving the ASPR to higher levels of effectiveness and readiness. Now, you ask in the second portion of your question about, um, you know, what about the strategic stockpile? Well, the strategic stockpile is not for the VA and is not for government agencies. Um, those agencies should be maintained outside the national strategic stockpile. 
but the national strategic stockpile should be informed by the fact that either we're going to move back on shore the um, production of pharmaceuticals and disposable assets used in healthcare. Uh, we're not going to be dependent on our allies or even sometimes our adversaries to deliver stuff to us. Let me give you an example of that. The top 120 medications used by Americans are all produced in other countries. I don't care how good an ally you are. If um, one of our allies' own people are overwhelmed with a disease, they're not shipping us insulin. And um, we were at great risk at running out of materials. Now, you can either buy enough and stockpile it, and uh, or you can move manufacturing back in the United States. And one of the most disappointing things, uh, I believe, in the last year is the lack of real debate about what would power the resurgence of American manufacturing or the effective stockpiling of materials. You know, following Desert Storm, Desert Storm ended quickly after just a few days um, of uh, fighting because, frankly, America couldn't sustain and the Department of Defense could not sustain its war fighting ability. There was a shortage of nerve antidote. There was a shortage of materials only used in wartime. And Congress, following uh, the end of Desert Storm, authorized the stand-up of what's called the Defense where literally the Department of Defense buys and keeps warm a uh, industrial base to ensure America is safe. That same model needs to be applied uh, to public health and public health response. It, you know, I was dependent upon the purchase of certain uh, clothes and gowns from China. And uh, the Chinese said, well, you've got to pay for them in advance. And um, that it violates the ability of, a, of the government to actually buy materials because we don't pay in advance. Uh, we pay only after we can inspect the product. And it created huge problems in our ability to resupply. And so I think that the debate um, on, um, on how do you grow the American industrial base, how do you onshore the production of pharmaceuticals and disposable materials for healthcare? Um, needs to be embarked with the same sense of urgency uh, by our Congress and our, our elected leaders um, that w- occurred after World War II in the stand-up of the national security apparatus that has been so effective today. Do you have anything else to share with us today? The book is, uh, again, entitled uh, Save Every Life You Can. It was a motto we followed when we made the decision to take the most critically ill patients in America off the hands of commercial health care. It is really a reflection and a celebration of the people of the VA, more than 250 of which have lost their lives to COVID uh, during this response. And I think uh, Americans need to understand there is huge lessons learned here, and they should have a sense of pride in the 363,000 VA employees who put themselves on the front line, who voluntarily uh, moved to where the uh, disease was most prevalent in order to save every life they possibly could. And the reflection of that 
uh, is in the statistics of the people that we cared for and their survival rate and their recovery rate. Dr. Stone, thank you so much for taking the time to meet with us today. Yeah, it's so nice to, to see you again, and, and thanks for the great work that you continue to do. I'm, I'm so pleased to see that you're continuing to have so much success. Thank you for listening. For more episodes, check us out at govforum.io or anywhere you listen to podcasts. And please, subscribe, give us five stars, and share with your friends.